this week's episode, Jahad and I sat down with Austin Roby, co-founder of Ampled, a musician-owned music cooperative. Think Spotify, but owned by the artists. He also co-founded MetaLabel with Kickstarter founder Yancey Strickler. MetaLabels are groups of people working under a common identity for a common purpose with a focus on releases or distinct public works that reflect and manifest their views. Finally, he is a partner with Unnamed Fund, a cooperatively controlled ecosystem fund for creatives and artists. We hope you enjoy the episode. Thanks for joining us today, Austin. Hey, what's up? So I think we like to kick this thing off usually by just asking you to give a little intro to or for the audience to use a person, your background, maybe in tech and otherwise. So maybe you can start there. Yeah, my name is Austin Roby. Sometimes I struggle to condense it in one sentence. I feel like I have some multi-hyphenated roles. I'm, uh, I guess I'm interested in collective ownership. I'm interested in Web3 and new expressions of collective ownership. I help start a cooperative platform called Ampled, which is like a Patreon for music that's collectively owned by the artists and workers. And I'm currently working on a project called MetaLabel, which is a group that uh, builds tools and resources for uh, collectives and creative communities. And then also find myself working with uh, within several democratic online communities, some of them DAOs, some of them otherwise. And yeah, so I think where like most of my work is, is in kind of like offline world of cooperatives, this more online world of DAOs or internet native communities, the blend between that and then often kind of touching some element of uh, like art design culture. Nice. And so a while back, you had this spicy tweet about um, how you would basically print out a business school curriculum and eat it if you found out that they covered cooperatives or something to that effect, which I thought was hilarious. Well, first I wanted to know, did you do that? Because I think someone discovered that they do like one business school in all of America. (laughs) No, I think I was trying to make a point that sometimes the most kind of like prestigious schools may be the ones that overlook teaching things like cooperatives specifically in business and law schools is something that, and it turns out it was a little bit wrong, but mostly right. I think, uh, yeah, so there's, it's just remarkable how little, um, like the model of cooperatives is taught um, in schools where people are even learning about it as an option. This is from the experience of talking to top corporate lawyers about cooperatives. I have no idea about them. You know, it's really, it's a major barrier for cooperatives to get started of even just having, you know, people learn that they are an option or having lawyers that know what they are. It's a huge barrier. Just interacting with the ones you interact with every day. You're like, well, that's, that's a cooperative. I didn't know that. Right. Right. (laughs) Ocean spray or whatever. You're like, what? That's weird. Um, A lot of them are like uh, agricultural cooperatives, which I think is, I think Cornell has a program that's focused on agricultural cooperatives, which are a little bit different because they're more like, they're more like aggregations of more hierarchical companies working together, like a cooperative of purchasers or producers. So, but not much in terms of learning about worker cooperatives. There's, Nathan Schneider at University of Colorado is definitely like a leader in the space. Trevor Scholes at the New School in New York. Yeah, but it's it's just kind of interesting that these topics, you know, have been kind of erased 
from education. I think I think Nathan argues in uh, his book Everything for Everyone that a lot of that's just like a Cold War continued aversion uh, towards anything that resembles an alternative to capitalism. So oh, it's yeah. something that was kind of just like erased or or not taught. Yeah. This is definitely something that I think we should do an entire episode on. Not that I'm writing you off. I think it's a great point because like that you see a lot of this in the engagement between the in the post-Soviet era. Like the Soviet Union was not one thing, right? Like there were there's a bunch of weird hierarchical state-based, you know, capitalism and roll-up of industries and a complete state control, one party state controlled, then you get away from certain areas and you have like 80% cooperative economies. It's very, very interesting. But for sure, it's like all that stuff when it encountered in the Washington consensus was like, it's either that or this. I don't know what this other thing is. <laughs> right. And so actually that kind of back that back into the next thing I was interested in, in learning from you, which is that uh it sounds like you know some of these folks you're speaking about in that spicy tweet are honestly this this happens to me still and people are like wait you can have shared ownership what do you mean what is a cooperative it's like a weird idea right how did you first encounter this idea because now you're out there in the forefront of it I mean it's not a pun sorry but like <laughs> that's uh, you know you're out there really at the forefront of it like in the innovation of social organization of it in these new you know digital communities that are driven by this notion of web three how did you first encounter it how did you address that area of like oh i know what this thing is right because that has to happen to everybody right yeah well i you know i didn't have a long storied experience of working within cooperatives i live in brooklyn and i'm aware of the park slope food co-op i've always been aware of it and thought it was such a cool idea that there's 30,000 people that co-own a grocery store and it's like it's members only. It's very high quality produce and food. And what is sold is determined by the, the member owners. And to become a member, you have to work an hour shift. So, and it's just interesting thinking of all these professionals and families that take, uh, you know, one hour out of their, their month to like, you know, work at the checkout counter or stock produce. Yeah. That was an interesting concept to me always, but I never lived in the area. So I never participated in that, but yeah, I had never, I had like a personal firsthand experience of even working with a cooperative. My first experience was just reading about them and learning about them. I think in um like a late 2017 coming across, I don't even remember how I came across it, but the book ours to hack and to own, which is a series of essays written by a bunch of people, which is was put together by Nathan Schneider and Trevor Scholes, two of the professors that I've mentioned before. And this, uh, so I, I was at least familiar with the concept of a, a, a cooperative, but this book specifically was applying it to tech, which seemed really interesting. And it was at that time that me and friends, Colin Lewis and Ryan Deshaun were thinking about the concept behind Ampled and what could we do or how could we build a platform in a way that's unique and interesting and gives it the best chance of success and is something that we would be proud of building working on and like a resistance to just like wanting to sell it just trying to figure out like what is a different model for this and so and then also reading i think that malcolm cladwell like david and goliath book i was also just really interested also in the resiliency of these shared ownership models and something that larger startups just can't do like if you do something kind of unintuitive and something that it's, it's a 
maybe not obviously financially rational or maybe just like financially irrational that it can be something that actually is that like leads to something having a greater chance of success. So yeah, I just, that led, you know, reading ours to hack and tone led me just to want to dig deeper and look going to the library and really not finding any books on cooperatives. And that's was, I feel like, you know, just learning more and talking to the people that would generously give their time, but just made me realize there was an opportunity. There was like this information gap that felt like it was important to not only explore and just demonstrate what could be possible, but to make some contribution as well to like expanding this idea for other people. Sweet. Yeah. I think that's funny that you bring that up about expanding it because I think you're one of the folks who has there aren't that many of us who have like years in platform cooperative experience, right? Like it's, you know, the idea has been around since what, 2014, I think when, when Travis put it into words, right? And so, you know, where was your first practice with these ideas of sharing collective ownership? Was it Ampled? Was it somewhere else? Yeah, no, it was, it was Ampled. That was it. It was like, you know, we're, we did pretty, I'd say the beginning of Ampled was really less like building a tech company, more like a research project. Like, digging into all the mechanisms and mechanics of how ownership can be shared and even looking at ways that maybe could be agreeable with venture capital, you know, eventually planning on just it feeling like the best path forward to just say no VC, no investor ownership, just defaulting to just this like radical simplicity of like, it's hundred percent owned by us. There's no asterisk. It's a co-op, but also looking at examples like Juno was a ride share Right app that was an Uber competitor that at the time had a really interesting value prop to, I mean, at the time it was, you know, it was a competition to gain drivers where everyone was offering like subsidized pay and perks. And they decided to offer ownership in the form of restricted stock units that would vest if the company sold or went public. That was an interesting way of approach. Even looking at that, like, is that something that we could do. And I tried to explain it to just like a couple of musicians and it's just like, wait, what? <laughs> like, like what's a restricted stock unit? What is vesting? What is an exit? Yeah. What is a liquidity event? And you're just like, yeah. oh, I don't want, I don't want to sign up for this. Like I'd rather <laughs> just keep it, keep it simple. And also like the idea of like a uh, dilution or like, what's it worth? Or, how does VC work? These like layers and layers of like financial concepts that I'm not passionate about anyways. Um, just it's like, yeah, this is not, I don't want to sign up for, for being this person. Yeah, no, that totally makes sense. It's one of my friends who's super bearish on cooperatives and even the concept of shared ownership goes like, are you nuts? You want to explain a series A, like series A shares to some person who's like participating in Let's see, like, let's say Uber, right? Or like, you know, then there's other platforms like Bump Twitter. He's like, are you nuts trying to explain that to your grandma? <laughs> and I was like, I don't know, man. Maybe you can. <laughs> I'm not sure, right? That's kind of a you know contrived example, right? Yeah. Well, that but, was uh, that ended up becoming like a, a litmus test for us, which was like, can we explain how this works to someone at a loud bar that's had two drinks and have them understand what it is? And so. Like, you know, if you look at our our website and our bylaws, it's written in about as plain English as it can be. And it has cartoons in it. And it's just really easy to understand. It's like you can become an artist owner if you get 10 supporters on the platform. 
Yeah. I also think just on that point, right? Like there's a, the thing that gives me so much kind of hope about this space is it reminds me kind of the work that you're doing now and not just you Austin, but like generally the community is doing and educating people on the power of shared ownership reminds me a lot of, you know, like 15 years ago, similar to your experience kind of came to this point on this starting this company of just not wanting to raise VC, moved to India and no one, well, we wanted to give stock to the the folks, essentially my co-founders there that we were working with in Pune and no one really understood it. And now like, you know, India has kind of probably the most vibrant entrepreneurial startup ecosystem where it's hard to hire anyone good without giving them stock. So I do think that like there's this education that happens through more and more case studies that is going to lead to more and more experience of people having this that suggests that similar to employee stock within early stage startups has become mainstream both in developing countries and in the West. I think we'll see that now with general community ownership or stakeholder ownership because of the work that people like you and everyone else is doing in educating uh, communities on the power of shared ownership. Yeah, we have like a, that's like a, a bigger question, which may actually be the most important one is fluency around ownership. Like we, I think we have a much stronger understanding of more bread and butter type issues like salary or benefits. But when it comes to ownership, there's like little understanding or even just like an expectation or standards or or even like it being articulated as a value that, you know, would be something that we demand in a place that we work or something that we would expect in a place that we shop at. These are just like, yeah, these are things that are not cultural standards yet. Yeah, I think, uh, and this and Ample is a great example. So let's just j- dive into it, right? You mentioned you had a couple of co-founders and y'all were trying to figure out like, how do we communicate this idea? Can we communicate it in a loud bar with someone who's two drinks in? Which I, I mean, I don't know much about the music industry, but that sounds like <laughs> that sounds like the ideal test case pretty much, right? If you're at, like, at a show or whatever, you're like, yo, Stop putting your music on Spotify, bro. Put it over here, right? Whatever. And like, why should I do that? Oh, well, have you heard of a restricted stock unit or whatever, right? Like, (laughs) that's kind of like the way to break it down. But I mean, for you though, like, why Ampled, right? So, like, why why music? Why Ampled? Well, I had always played music, and you know, my the group of people that worked with to start Ampled have all been in in bands, and I think we all have friends in bands that have we've kind of like seen that uh, asymmetry of like perceived success up close where, you know, people come home from tour and there's just the precarity of gig work and like, you know, obviously just a dis- like there should be some better way at the same time observing kind of uh, the earlier arc of Patreon, which it felt like a really compelling model in itself of like giving money directly at that moment, there were very few, say like 2017-ish, there felt like very few musicians on Patreon that weren't YouTube musicians. And it felt like there was, it felt like there was a need for something that was more palatable and that people were more proud to associate with. So I think, you know, at the core, like none of the people building it were financially motivated to build it. I think we just wanted to make something that we were proud of that felt cool. And so much of it was like built during COVID. And so a lot of it actually was like people were laid off from tech jobs, free time 
we sort of, and it just became this thing where we just really enjoyed the people that we worked with. And it was just like a labor of love and it, it still is. And then if I kind of invert it too, like, is there a reason like you know, maybe if you zoom out from you folks who started it and the particular context you were in, you know, when I zoom when I look at the broader landscape of streaming music and ownership, right? Like there's maybe you'll be lucky and be like, uh, what's your fate? I don't know anything relative to popular music, right? So like maybe I'll just pick out of hat Katy Perry, right? <laughs> maybe she got lucky and owned point one percent of Spotify as part of her like negotiation rights for putting her music on a platform, right? But at its heart, like this is an industry that continues to be completely tilted in favor of like either infrastructure or labels, right? And so did that part, that lack of ownership for artists and creators, that part also, that play a part in all of this as well? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the music industry is so messy under the hood. So, I mean, the approach one to do recurring direct payments was intentional just a way to bypass it just like like not deal with the traditional music industry like hoping the musicians on indie labels could do this turns out yes ends up it's totally fine and i think they're you know labels have never been like the enemy uh they're like indie labels are the ones actually you know taking risk and putting money and investing it into to artists making new work Oh, just the, you know, this like amazing lack of ownership, right? When you look at music, did that play that complete? I don't necessarily, I don't know, I can be kind of a spicy person myself. I guess you could call it an injustice, but when you look at some of the, you know, value adds of the music industry, when you stopped having commodity, you know, CD printing and all that, now you have access to marketing channels and, you know, dis- distribution, sure, right? But distribution, as we've seen, has become commoditized by streaming in a lot of ways, right? And so it's not necessarily even distribution, it's the demand aggregation, right, that you have access to that then is like a rent extractive infrastructure. So was that part of what played into this? Because for us, you know, ownership, it's literally right there in the podcast title, we think that if you extend ownership to more as an incentive, as governance, as a number of other things that like rolls things up in more equitable ways, potentially, right? That's a future worth exploring. Does that really play into what you folks are doing? Yeah. I mean, we were thinking about it a lot just from the growing reliance on platforms to like build an audience or distribute music. And this has become more so the case during COVID where we just like became so reliant on platforms. And yeah, you know, it's like, it seems like a reasonable question to ask how much would these platforms be worth without these creators on them? How much would Patreon be worth without any creators on it? How much would Spotify be worth if it wasn't, you know, renting access to things that it didn't create? How much would Uber be worth without the drivers? And this seems like there's like music in particular is just like a long story past of value just being extracted from people. I can't even imagine like the bleakness of a world without music too. Like the value is so intangible that um yeah it feels like this uh we've had the conversation about problems with major labels but we have yet to i think like more critically apply that kind of critique to platforms which often just receive the benefit of the doubt maybe sometimes are a little bit more critical but very rarely are asked who owns it 
yeah. or again, just expecting any kind of ownership or even understanding that that, that has tremendous value. Implications. Yeah, implications as well. No, it's funny you say that because I just, it just must be a reflection of my being extremely online because I can't go like five days without seeing someone break down. Like this is how much Spotify gives, you know, creators on average relative to, you know, the Apple breakdown, whatever breakdown, right? It's like fractions of a penny. And so like, you know, the marketing is quite good on the, you know, on the platform side for these, but the, it's really just uh, follows a power law distribution similar to everything else, right? Like there's like a handful of people who get all of it and there everyone else is a trailing thing. And you are shackled to the insides of the platform if you want to figure out a way to market, right? So, or find an audience. Now, if we kind of zoom, you know, we continue on your story here, you've got Apple, you've got a number of things that are coming along, coming up alongside of it, forefront, you're, you're one of the folks in web three who is the most well-versed in cooperatives if you looked at something like ample i think you correct me if i'm wrong here but you got involved uh, in the co-founding it before your involvement in like uh cryptocurrency web3 all that kind of stuff right oh yeah i was really very anti web3 nice i mean definitely something that i feel on an, it is not like a solid thing right we're both skeptics on this podcast for very specific reasons but but then getting into that a bit, then, you know, if you were, we've talked about digital community management, digital community, thriving, self-managing organizations with a lot of other folks in the pod before, if you were going to start Ampled again today, would it go the Dow route? Would it not? What are the reasons for that in your mind? Yeah, I think as uh, I reflect and think about the journey and also maybe have like a up close understanding of some of the the challenges, like some of the practical challenges of like, how do you build like a motivated team? How do you actually build a product that is stable that people want to use? How do you fund and finance this? Like, these are the the, the questions that are necessary to answer for building some of this stuff. And, you know, I, the, like, would it be a cooperative or go the Dow route? I think I'm definitely not a co-op maximalist. I think that now I lean more towards being open towards uh, more like less wholesale applications of governance ideologies and more blends that maybe can be fits for particular communities. I think that a, a DAO route, you know, mixing in the spirit of a co-op is probably the approach that I would take. You know, we've struggled finding financial support for what, what we're doing. We were able to to raise some money through like, through very unique debt terms, revenue-based debt terms that we drafted ourselves. And then we're able to get some tiny grants and a few like tiny awards. And we only had $90,000 throughout the entire like life of the company. So yeah, I think that the Dow model like is, is something the co-op should look closer at. I think particularly as ways to to better resource the bootstrapping phase of these organizations. Like Ampled was able to to actually build a product, but like we all suffered, like especially me, you know, for such a long time, I was the only full-time person. And that was like a, like a lonely, like really, really tough time. And I don't, I don't think I, I expect other people to do that or want other people to do that with there's little to no clear financial upside there has to be better answers than just suffer together and there is some but there's very little progress on 
the side of financing cooperatives. So I think like it's not necessarily like a pro doubt perspective, but it's like a, a pro can we make shared or public goods or collectively owned products, tools, can we make those profitable to build? Like this is a design space where maybe it can be. Not, you know, not that the the path is clearly articulated yet, but I think it's worth looking at. I think maybe the Web3 space has some of the best opportunity to find that solution. Cool, man. I think you touched on a lot of really interesting things that I'm going to circle back and kind of dig into a bit more. So I think one was um, this idea. Well, first, you mentioned that you can't with your own revenue-based financing terms. What did that look like? And how did you shop that around? Well, it was only to friends that were <laughs> like, like uh, generous enough to basically not do any due diligence beyond how much do I like this idea. And yeah, it was, it's like revenue-based financing works where, you know, it's a good option for groups that are just allergic to giving up equity. In our case, we just like, that was a red line where like, there's no, there is no selling ownership, which is like how like investment is normally raised. So there was an exchange of um, like a tiny silver of top line revenue that goes back to repaying investors to a capped return of 3x. So the idea is once investors get 3x their money, then the obligation is over. And just to put that put that in context, right? So like when a venture capitalist goes out and raises a bunch of money um, from LPs, you know, to get a 3x return on a fund from a diversified portfolio is considered a very good return, right? So to the extent that we created a set of cooperatives that, I mean, you're comparing kind of apples and oranges here. I'm comparing apples and oranges here because you're talking about a portfolio approach and a risk-adjusted return versus kind of the return on one company. But to to imagine a set of companies where you could get a 3x return just on revenue without kind of the equity component would provide a similar IRR to the investor as a traditional venture capital approach. And so to the extent that you're able to demonstrate that, or a couple of ventures are able to demonstrate that, I think it opens up a lot of financing for cooperatives over time just through this one innovation. Yeah. I mean, the the tricky part is that uh, then you don't have the outliers that make up for all the other groups. And it's still as risky, if not riskier, actually, than other startups that may have more oxygen and room to breathe and like more financing options, like at every stage of, of their life cycle. So yeah, I don't, it's a, it was an interesting kind of like attempt at a solution, but I still don't think that it's like, I, th- I would like for the, investing in groups like this to be more rational for the for people to support financially this was more just like i like the project i like the the people and you know i don't think there's i would love i mean i want the investors to get paid back to a nice return but like we're not really on those targets right now but, but at the same time i think like the you know they're relatively small investments from friends and people that are still very supportive of the project. Cool. And then you mentioned like along the way as well. So you do you, you raise money. <laughs> I love the approach. It's like there's just one thing that I love about what you said is that just being honest about it, right? Like there is just um, you know, there's so much I wouldn't say noise. It's just like, you know, it's a small group of people and everyone's just like, co-ops are great, co-ops are that, this and other. It's like being a founder of a co-op from every person I've talked to really sucks when you're at this like in the last you know seven years doing the tech platform cooperative thing you know we had 
Uh, Jason Prada wasn't a founder of Drivers Co-op, but very, very early, might as well have been, right? And then Jen from Savvy Cooperative as well was on. And yeah, uh, especially on the Savvy side, I got to see that up front for a long time being one of her like early supporters. And it is not pretty out there. And you're starting to see some of these things pop up in the early life of cooperatives, right? Like start.coop. I believe you went through start.coop, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. So there's start.coop. There was in TVC, which was taking, you know, took a stab with Savvy. There's still RBF, uh, revenue-based financing options out there, but that's about it, right? And like you said, it's even more risky to dole out seed money to, to cooperatives for a number of reasons. So now that you're standing here on the opposite side of it, you mentioned a couple of things in passing in terms of like what co-ops can learn from DAOs, but let maybe you could summarize that for us a bit real quick before we jump into your involvement in DAOs, right? If you're looking at it now with the pain and the wounds and the scars from co-ops, what are some of the, a couple of patterns that you throw out there for maybe founders who are thinking of like, I want to do shared ownership. Should I do this to DAO or a co-op? What, should, what pattern should I borrow? Yeah. Um, I think that cooperative culture can be sometimes slow or maybe fetishized rulemaking and these are good habits to have but some of the examples in the web3 space have formed collectively owned groups that are able to to form and ship a product super quickly i think there's something to be said about the speed at which web3 moves i think of party dow as an example that's interesting to look at which created party bid like a really cool little app that makes collective bidding and collective fractionalized ownership of NFTs possible. And that that being started with like a, a crypto native crowdfund, which became like its own internet native collectively run organization. That happened so fast and it's created a product that's moved millions of dollars around, which I think is really interesting. It is, yeah. Wow. What's I think, you know, something else that um co-ops can take from DAOs is just like using tokens to bootstrap networks. I think that's the big one. So yeah, when you have like this flexible, programmable, like incentive tool that can be imbued with anything, it's really, I mean, there's so many possibilities of just ways to engage people, ways to build something from, from nothing to something. And the experience that I've had being in some Web3 communities is seeing firsthand just like how like surprisingly healthy some of these communities have been in, in um, not turning everything into a speculative stock market and then still just how engaged people have been and how it's like a unique tool for, for feeling like an owner having a, tokens in your wallet, being able to vote on things and maybe even having like a more clear, intuitive relationship to a financial upside. Thinking of, you know, ownership, like, you know, because I, I think that, uh, you know, maybe the life of co-op founders would be easier if it were actually slightly more financialized, not fully, but like introducing some level of it so that yeah. people don't burn out. Right. One thing you mentioned that was super interesting, what I want to get back to is the speed element, right? Like I think, you know, co-op, co-ops that ship, there are, you know, first of all, there aren't that many platform cooperatives to begin with, but then, you know, there are a few that do ship. And I don't think it's a coincidence that their backgrounds overlap in places like, you know, either Facebook, Google, and other places where people are like, hey, I learned how to do things quickly in a small group in a giant company, well-funded, right? That's not that much of a, you know, it's not much of a surprise. But for you, like, what do you think it is about these groups you've seen in DAOs that ship really quickly? Is it the fact that they're 
are they following some kind of best practice for self-managing organizations? Are they doing, how do they avoid this, you know, this like, let's vote on everything situation? What is the itness about them? Well, I think yeah, every group in the Web3 space is imperfect in some way, but it's like really nice to see this rapid experimentation of governance models. It, it might be that it's a, a self-selected group of people that are naturally inclined to to build. And I think like it probably is a lot of people that have worked in traditional tech as well. But I think, you know, one thing that I've observed is a lot of people kind of with a, a newfound interest in looking backwards at cooperatives starting in the Web3 space, because there's so many overlapping ideas with collective ownership and collective governance. And I think that what's core to that is something that um, has been like a uh, it's a, a muscle that we've like, has like culturally atrophied or like, we're just, we don't have a, like ability to, to work, work this muscle often of working in truly collaborative environments. I think it's something that people on a personal level deeply want and are excited by. And so like, you know, people that are incredibly brilliant software developers that like want to work together in really collaborative ways. I think like it might just be a self-selecting group of people, but also there's like a personal element of it of like, this is a way of working together that we haven't had the opportunity to do before. Got it. Yeah. I think because like, it's interesting because there are, you know, I'm probably like you in some ways, you know, we, we both probably worked in, you know, decentralized organizations or horizontal self-managing organizations that maybe follow a framework or whatever. But you know, you it's it, you're correct in that it is kind of a muscle that isn't exercised that much, right? It's like a, I, and it's interesting. We have folks. We've had folks like Jason Prado on earlier in the series who he actually said it turns out, and you know, he, he if it wasn't true, I don't think he'd make this up. He's like, it turns out that in some of those places you love to hate, like Facebook and Google, they actually can do this pretty well, and it's why part of why they're successful, right? Is that like they're not this monolith of. Uh, you know, hierarchical management from the top down. There are pockets of, you know, I wouldn't say liberation per se, but maybe for freedom to define work and how to work and you can move really quickly and get shit done. And that's what he, that's the ethos of what he was pulling out of that area. So mm-hmm. it's interesting to see that in your, your pockets of Web3 as well, that's kind of you know, roughly what it sounds like you're seeing as well. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah. Cool. And then so now, now it's time to get, you know, for me, it's taking me a while. This probably isn't weird for you. This is just where you're at. It's time to get a little bit weird and get into Meta Label, right? Because okay. I because I'm playing around with it. Okay. <laughs> and cool. and I've been uh I've been in the in the Discord. I'm you know kind of went and set one up the other day just to see what it was like. And I believe Yancey was at uh, your co-founder was at ETH Denver when I saw him kind of give a talk on this. And so I'm interested, you know, what is it uh, you went from, you know, you went from Ample, you've been doing some stuff with Forefront and uh, other DAOs, and then you started MetaLabel with Yancey and I don't know any of the other co-founders. So tell us a little bit about what is MetaLabel? It's a, a squad of six people right now. Uh, Yancy Strickler, Rob Kalin, Anna Bulbrook, Ilya Yudinov, Lauren Dorman, and me. Yeah, I would describe it as like a, a group of people building tools and resources for collectives, creative communities. We have articulated this word, meta label, like a lowercase m meta label, as something that has existed past and present of a, uh, a group of people with a common purpose and a common identity, kind of like pushing 
an opinionated worldview through releases. So I would think about like a meta label is like any label for anything, any form of culture. Or you could also look at it as like a release club or a creator DAO. These are, are groups that have existed past and present. It's not necessarily like a new concept, but what what I think has happened just as we kind of like lack a uh, a muscle memory to work collectively, sometimes we're deficient in language to describe collective modes of working, not only to ourselves, but to other people. So I think this term meta-label is really just like our first contribution of like, you know, a way to describe a way that a group can work together. And what has happened is a lot of people have come up and said, yeah, this is actually what we are. Like We are a meta-label for X, we're a meta-label for Y. And that has been helpful because people sometimes it's hard to know where you fit in kind of like rigid for-profit or non-profit containers. And, you know, DAO is a word that I think means less over time to people. So, yeah, you know, we plan on, you know, also introducing actual tools for groups to come together and release things under a common identity. So I would think of this as like, you know, what's the next stage of the creator economy? The creator economy, in my mind, uh, is you know, suffers from like the kind of emotional anxieties of being sole individual creators often. And I think there's a lot of room for what, uh, you know, thinking about what happens when we squat up and are able to do things together. What is it like when we come together, you know, less as like a individual creator, but more as collectives of creators and release things that way. And what, what is that, how is that expressed in kind of like a s- software or platform? And so I, I would describe that it's what we're building, but we're also like working as a meta label, like doing things and releases like small drops over time that like continue to build up our thesis. It's all very meta. Not that I'm trying to make a dumb joke, but like it is very self-referential, right? So it's interesting because you got me thinking, I don't know if you noticed, I was just, you know, while you were talking, it's just a couple of things occurred to me, right? Is that, you know, when you look at some of the, the past organizations of companies, they, you know, like, you know, think of like the car, the automobile industry with like Ford or something, right? The, a lot of these folks have now just all become commoditized unless you're dealing with a luxury brand, right? What is the difference between owning a Ford versus a whatever? Well, you know, Ford, Chevy, et cetera, they set themselves apart by the vast, vast, vast amount of marketing and positioning spend that they put in to be like, we're different than those guys. But I'm coming back around to this, trust me, in a way when it started to make me think about like things like uh, Gitcoin and Radical and their founding stories, right? So just you know, for the audience, right? Radical was founded to be the collaborative, decentralized, decentrally owned GitHub, right? But now when you look at Radical today, you know, it has about, a, I think about a hundred million dollar market cap and it's got a thriving DAO community that is actually shipping products really quickly. It ships drips. It's going to ship something called workflows very soon that makes it really easy for you to split out sub-DAO groups and fund them with drips, right? These are all things that are <laughs> radically different than how they started, right? And kind of the same with Gitcoin. Gitcoin started as a thing, you know, that it, basically folks were trying to build a platform for engineers to get paid for open source software. It is radically different than that today, right? So there's something to be said for the idea that new edges in your network, right? People who join it end up having this sort of dynamic interaction between new values, new things that should be built, new capabilities that then get absorbed into the organization, transform it and lead it in a new direction. And it sounds 
a lot like you're giving a shell to some of the things to things like that. How does that sound? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I think uh yeah, I like a you know, like a collective is a a group of many people. I think one thing we thing we talked about internally is how even individuals are groups of many selves. It's I've uh yeah, we've been thinking about, you know, not like what are the elements of a common identity? There's like a a common voice, something that that we've been talking about recently. Yeah, these are all I think interesting questions, especially applied to creators working online, you know, online creator economy platforms now, I think like generally kind of like strip you of your aesthetic, your context, like who you want to be next to, like where you're kind of isolated on your own islands, you know, even the marketing materials for a lot of creator economy platforms, like treat you again, as like a gig worker, as a small business. Yeah. But, you know, what does this look like when platforms more fully allow people to be members of different kinds of groups or maybe like ephemeral members of a group or be a part of one release or be related to several like releases that are parts of multiple groups. I think there's there's a lot of design space here of just like if it's true, which I believe it's true that we're shifting towards a more like post-individual culture and economy, like more like collectively minded one where people actually want to work in more flat collective ways then that would require new tools and different um, different ways of organizing and releasing things together. So one area that's really interesting for me on what you're talking about, I just finished a paper this morning on broad-based employee stock ownership, reading a paper, not writing it, reading a paper this morning on broad-based employee stock ownership and effects on labor productivity. So there's been all these studies on like how when you extend employee stock ownership out into you know, a majority of employees, it has all these effects on labor productivity, but the mechanism for how that works is not very well researched. And what this paper was getting at is that there's really two things to, there's at least two things that are happening within the organization. One relates to social identity theory, which effectively says that people kind of organize around these groups that you're talking about. And when they feel part of a group, they're actually willing to help each other out more. Things that are very intuitive, but have not been part of the research literature. And so, and then the other, the second way, which the mechanism by which broad-based ownership leads to labor productivity is a reduction in voluntary turnover. So less people quit, right? Um, Which has an effect. So one question that I have is like, how are you like, are there things that you're doing, not just within the design space from the technology perspective, but also within the organization that is trying to cultivate this sense of community in a curated fashion within, within the work that you're doing? And the reason why I ask is in a, in a normal firm where you would have traditional broad-based employee ownership, you'd probably have someone doing that, right? Like you'd have managers and teams that were trying to kind of make sure that employees felt like they could participate and make sure that that identity was being established either through someone responsible for culture or someone responsible for HR. And I just wonder how this kind of works out and kind of the type of the type of platform that you're creating and how deliberate you are in the process and what are the things that you've learned? Yeah, I mean, on an organizational level, meta-label with a capital M, like our organization is structured in a unique way, like a partnership where we kind of have flat standard equity ownership across every member. And yeah, are fully committed to like a collective working mode at the ownership level. 
as well. And, and it's something that, uh, you know, this is largely kind of my role and domain within the organization is thinking about like community or stakeholder strategy, like how do stakeholders relate to each other? Like, how do we create a sense of belonging? How do we create a sense of ownership? What are things that we could uh, do to curate or produce work together? So yeah, I'm interested in like turning our communications channels into just full collective voices of like someone posts something in Discord, it receives a certain amount of emoji reactions, it automatically gets posted to Twitter. And it doesn't matter who posted that because this group is all of us. It's not just one person. Yeah. So I've been thinking about things like that. Also thinking about playing with um, I mean, early ideas of playing with GPT-3, like machine learning trained on on all of our like things that we've written to create a collective voice that is like its own thing, maybe even naming that. So, so like having AI generated a copy like communications copy that is like literally trained on all of our voices is something that is interesting to me. So these are all like experiments of like, how do we create a collective voice? How do we, how do we create a collective identity? Like what are ways that we could, you know, curate together? If someone posts something on the discord, does it automatically publish to our homepage in some way? Like these are, these are some of the things that we're, that we're thinking about of like, yeah, how do you, like, how do you make a feeling of ownership or feeling belonging, which of belonging, which is, you know, oftentimes like just as important or, or more important than kind of like what it means on like a, a legal basis. Yeah. I think actually in the literature supports that last sentence you just said, like psychological ownership and cultivating psychological ownership is so critical to actually having these effects within the firm or within the company. And if you don't do that, if it's just about like extrinsic motivation where you get this reward. And this is one of the problems with kind of some of the design spaces within Web3 is you, it's so extrinsically motivated where if you take this discrete action, you get this reward that that psychological ownership gets lost in the practice and or in the process. And um, you don't get the rewards of aligning kind of stakeholder incentives in a way where people have not only the financial component, but also the ability to influence through governance and also access to information are really kind of the three areas. So mm-hmm. um, the the ideas that you just kind of threw out there, I think are very interesting in terms of how does this come into practice where you don't have a traditional firm or you, you're building in a space that is a bit more amorphous than a traditional firm. And how do you create that same sort of participation in the hope of building social identity and this culture of psychological ownership? Yeah, we're still bound by all the kind of like laws that weren't written for organizations like this as well. So I think uh, a lot of Web3 native organizations aspire to be collectively owned, but there is a period before that where it's more ambiguous. I would say we're in that ambiguous stage right now. We have membership now, which is represented as like a a non-transferable NFT of about 60 members right now. So we're thinking through what does it mean to be a member? How does someone become a member? What does that equate to? You know, I think there's a lot of lessons that can be taken from the cooperative space of uh, thinking about ways to kind of like empower people, protect minority voices, like, you know, have like fully engaged participation in governance and also be able to ship things and ship things quickly. So, yeah, I think, you know, in a lot of ways, the success of a collectively owned group is better judged in like the medium or long-term 
than it is the short term. But um, all those kinds of like small steps and intentions are there for us right now at the beginning. Nice. So you have in your hands now then with uh, Yancy and the other members and co-founders of this thing, the six members, you have gotten this thing to, I think it was meta label round two, right? I, I played around with it the other day, created a meta label. Now that you're here, I, I think it was in what you just said around like, you know, success and mid to long term and all that. How do you define success here with something like this? How are you folks thinking about it? Like, do you, or is there something that you're kind of shooting for? Well, I think there's a lot of ways to define success. I think in our own way of moving culture towards people producing things more collectively is would be like one measure of success. Obviously, like a growing, a vibrant community that's articulated around these values would be a success. Uh, ha- building something useful for people that would allow people to not only help build more engaged collaborative groups, but even maybe join them for the first time. That might be interesting. And yeah, I mean, a way to help try to be one solution to how creators get paid online too. Like how do we actually provide material benefit for creatives and collectives online? Got it. I mean, that's awesome. Well, I think we've kind of rounded out the end of this. Thanks for covering our, your journey with us today. Lots to learn, lots of lessons here for people who are trying to actually build a world of more shared ownership. And the last thing I'll do is kick it over to you. Where can folks follow your work online, keep up with MetaLabel, Forefront, Ampled, all the things that you're into? I would say Twitter is probably the best place at AustinRoby underscore. Yeah, I have a, a link to my personal mirror page on my Twitter bio, which has like a like a list of other things that I've, I'm currently working on or things that I've done in the past. So my DMs are open too. So if anyone wants to, to reach out for any reason, feel free. Awesome. Thanks a lot for your time, Austin. Yeah, thanks for having me.